All right, friends, we are on the fifth Sunday of a sermon series. It's lasting seven weeks. It started the Sunday after Ash Wednesday and will conclude on Easter Sunday. And if you've been with us, we've been exploring how as a physical metaphor, as a backdrop to the spiritual truths of Scripture, back in the fall of 2020, myself, six of my friends, we did a canyon crossing of the Grand Canyon. It was 48 miles, 10,000 feet of elevation descent and gain. It was a, a tremendous experience, went a lot longer than we planned. It was exhausting. It was terrifying. It was so satisfying. And yet at the same time, after having completed that experience, we realized that the same steps that we took, not only to show up to that canyon and to cross that canyon and to come home transformed, that those same steps can actually apply to the canyons that God is calling us to cross in our own lives. So here we are in week five of this sermon series. And it was true for us on that day in the Grand Canyon. And I believe it's true for many of the canyons that we are called to cross in our lives. We had to turn around at the right moment. Now we made up our minds and we knew exactly where the right moment to turn around was. And because we had a mindset that accurately perceived the turnaround spot, our physical bodies followed our mindset and we turned and came back home. And that imagery of, of having a correct mindset that isn't just a perspective in itself, but a perspective that leads to a behavior change, a literal turnaround, that imagery helps me and helps all of us understand the biblical view of repentance. Now that word, that's, that's the word that many of us are like, no, no, I invited friends to watch this service with me. Don't talk about repentance. I've got baggage from when I was young, growing up in church. I don't want to hear about repentance. Maybe some of you have been to parades before and at the end, like the Rose Bowl parade. I had this as a kid, you know, you'd see people who would be marching afterwards and they never looked happy. They never looked joyful and they'd have the big signs and it would say, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Whatever you might have thought about repentance, we have an opportunity to come to scripture and to actually find that this word is actually, from God's point of view, a beautiful word. A word that actually leads to true life and real thriving. It actually can lead to, to real joy and security and peace and a, and a freedom that God longs for us to have. Did you know that Martin Luther not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther, an ancient leader in the early church. Remember in the midst of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, maybe you've heard of him. He, he, uh, he nailed what was referred to as the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. Have you ever read those? Probably not. I, you know, I, I just recently read through all of them. Did you know that the first of the 95 theses that were nailed on the Wittenberg door, you know what he says out the gates, what he wants to impress upon his listeners at the outset was this. This is Martin Luther. Many, many centuries ago, he said this. If our Lord and Savior and Master Jesus Christ said the word repent, then he, this is Jesus, willed that for every believer, 
their entire life would be one of repentance. Now, Martin Luther wasn't a sourpuss. He wasn't somebody down. He wasn't somebody that just wanted to grovel his way and, and head held down. He was a man of, of, of confident humility. He was a man of joy. He was a man that, that we were reminded of the, the faith and the grace alone that comes through putting your joy and your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. He was not a man of works to earn God's love. He knew that all the work had all been done by Jesus Christ and that we received that by faith. And yet he says that when Jesus said repent, he meant he willed that every believer, you and me, that our entire life would be one of repentance. And what he means by that is we'll discover today that even in the good times, that should lead us to repentance. Even in the bad times, that should lead us to repentance. In the highest of highs and the lowest of lows and the memorable moments and the monotony of life, every single moment of every single day is an opportunity, get this, to have a mindset that comes from God that leads to a turn away from whatever we've been chasing and a turn towards God and the life that he invites us into. Perhaps you've heard me say before that the, the word for sin in scripture, I'm using some words here that in culture, you know, we just, ah, we don't like these words, but they're beautiful words because the word sin actually, it gives, it gives a word picture, an image of kind of like a, an archer, like, like Robin Hood, like Katniss Everdeen, uh, of an archer aiming for the wrong target. In so much of our life, we, we, no matter who we are, no matter what we believe, we know what it's like to chase after things that once we attain it, once we experience it, once we have a certain status, it didn't produce what we thought it would. And we can, in some ways, just waste so much of our energy and our resources and our finances and our lives chasing after things that aren't worth it. That's all that sin is. It's, it's, it's aiming for something so much less than God's best. It's settling for the shadows. It's, it's getting swindled by the counterfeit rather than longing for the real thing, the full thing the true thing. And so in the same way, if sin is when we are aiming for the wrong thing, if we, because we are focused on the wrong thing and therefore our actions and our activities and our resources flow after our mindset and we're headed the wrong way, to repent is to have a change of mind. It's to, to change your mind towards the right target the full abundant life that God invites you into, that he gives you through grace, through tr trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a change of mind towards that. And therefore it's a turning of your lifestyle, a turning of your heart, a turning of your will, a turning of your resources to that very thing. Again, the, the Greek word uh, for repent is the word metanoia. It literally means to change one's mind. But our actions follow our mindset. And it's not just a change of mind, but what happens as a result of that changed perspective, that changed mind. 
What I want us to do is I want us to dive into scripture and I want us to see a moment where a group of people are confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, are confronted with the truth of how they had been aiming for the wrong thing. And something happens in their heart, in their life, that causes them to change their mind and ultimately to turn away from that wrong perspective. And I want you to hear this. In fact, this is in the, the book of Acts. And if you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to open them up. In fact, as I read through the New Revised Standard Version, there is so many translations of Scripture. This NRSV that I'm reading from is just one of many. And whether you have a physical Bible or you grab a um, a phone or a tablet, a smart device where you can access scripture on the internet or perhaps through the version app that I often recommend. This is Acts chapter two. And what I wanna do is I wanna pick up at the very, very end of one of the most famous speeches in the book of Acts. In fact, this is the first sermon given after Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. This is after Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, leaving uh, the first followers, um, filled with the Holy Spirit at this point. And Peter addresses a crowd, thousands of people. And he begins to outline who Jesus is, who he really is, not who they perceived him to be as just this rebel rouser, as somebody who was just trying to make a name for themselves. He gives an accurate perception of who Jesus really is and speaks the truth a truth in love that ends with this phrase. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read from that moment all the way down to verse 42. So this is Acts chapter two, verse 36 through 42. The end of the sermon, Peter says, therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him, this is Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they, and this is the crowd, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and therefore said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation." So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the reading of God's word, as we say every week. Thanks be to God. Now, I want to focus in on a phrase here. Perhaps you caught it. Perhaps you heard it at the very end of his sermon, his message, where he spoke the truth in love. He didn't water it down. 
He didn't hit them over the head with it. It was this, this balance. Remember, Jesus was full of both grace and truth and empowered by the Spirit of God. Peter's sermon was filled with both grace and truth. It has to be God-given to be able to enable us to communicate that way. I can sometimes lead too much towards grace and water down the truth or too much to truth and I water down the grace. We need to be as messengers of God, people who are willing to allow the Spirit of God to speak through us so that it's both full of truth and grace. And because of that, the reality of the situation arrived to the hearers. And it says this in verse 37, now when they heard this, what was the this? It was truth and grace that were one and the same it was God's perspective. When they heard God's perspective, not Peter's perspective, not a popular perspective, not a, a secular perspective, a politically correct perspective, when they heard God's perspective, it says this, they were cut to the heart. Now that phrase is a phrase we don't use very much in our culture today. They were cut to the heart. They were stopped in their tracks. There was something about God's perspective that got through all the surface layers, got through the hardness of their hearts, got through their entrenched viewpoints, and it got all the way in and they were cut to the heart. One of the beautiful things that scripture says about itself is that God's word is alive, it is active, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. God's word is the sharpest instrument in the cosmos. Now, thankfully, I haven't had to have too many surgeries in my life. I know some who have had dozens, sadly, and dozens of surgeries and what's been true for me in a small way is true for those in a, in a big way that when you, you have to go under the knife, when you have to have surgery, you want a, a doctor, a neurosurgeon, whatever field that might be practicing, you want them to use the sharpest instrument possible. You want a sharp scalpel, not a spoon, to cut into you, right? Uh, you want a laser, not a, a, a blunt lapel pin. The sharper the instrument, the less likely there is other damage done. You see, a sharp instrument has the ability to get right to the point without causing all this other mess on the side. Uh, a, a blunt object often never gets to the point, but oh, it causes so much damage. God's word is the sharpest instrument of all and it has the ability to cut through everything and get right to the point without causing all this other mess, without causing all this other exterior outside damage. There's no collateral damage to God's word. And in that moment, Peter opened himself to be an instrument, a vessel through which God's word could speak. And it says the hearers were cut to the heart. God's perspective, God's word, God's truth and God's grace 
made its point. And because of that, they didn't get defensive. They weren't filled with shame. Uh, They didn't blow off Peter. They didn't puff up with pride and say, no, 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 no." they weren't justifying themselves. Nor were they groveling. No, they, they responded in a way that happens when God's word actually hits your heart. It says they were cut to the heart and they responded and they said, brothers, what should we do? It was this sober moment where the truth of who God is and the truth of what they had done, they saw the canyon between those two things. The holiness of God, the holiness of Jesus, and the lack of holiness because they had called for, they had cried out for, they had approved of the crucifixion of the Holy One. There was a canyon. And in that moment, Peter responds to their genuine question of what should we do? And he says, repent. Metanoia in the Greek. It first means to change your mind. Now that you've heard God's perspective and you see how that's out of alignment with your prior perspective, you need to change your perspective to have God's perspective. You need to change your mind to have God's mindset. You need to change then the actions that flow out of that false and that shadow and that counterfeit mindset. And now you need to change it. You need to repent and therefore turn and be baptized. You formerly wanted him to die. To be baptized, as it says in Romans 6, is now you say, I want to be united with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. I want to now be dead to sin, dead to my former way of living so that Christ, having crucified that in me, defeats death and rises from the grave in the same way that he rises me up from the grave. The same spirit scripture says that rose Jesus from the grave now dwells in us, Peter's reminding them. So change your mind and turn is basically what he's saying. And in that moment, they did. 3,000 people changed their mind because they were open to God's right true, full of grace and truth, perspective to come into their life. It cut them to the heart. They changed their mind and they turned. And they received what we talked about last week, the fact that Jesus, who is the greatest canyon crosser of all, crossed that chasm on their behalf and they received it in faith. They received the grace of God. They received the Holy Spirit And they joined the fellowship of believers called to cross other canyons in their life. We live in a culture that rarely allows itself to be cut to the heart. It seems like in our culture, uh, you know, there is this, on one hand, a thick-headedness, hard-heartedness, never apologize in public sort of thing. And yet there is also this sense of uh, repentance from a cultural point of view, a secular point of view, a worldly point of view uh, that has actually, I believe, pervaded our thinking on a biblical view of repentance 
And I think that's one of the reasons why we are allergic to this word. We want to avoid this word. We really don't understand this word and we can't even fathom what Martin Luther means when he says that the entire believer's life should be one of repentance. So what do we do? How do we do this? How do we have a right perspective of of biblical repentance, of godly repentance, of a repentance that actually leads to freedom and joy and peace and goodness and thriving and flourishing? Well, what's fascinating, in 2 Corinthians, again, the Apostle Paul is writing this. Uh, This is after the first letter that he wrote to them. Uh, He says something and he delineates between godly grief that leads to repentance and worldly grief that leads to repentance. He says those are two very, very different things and they lead to two very, very different outcomes. Again, he's picking up on the fact that he's already written a letter. He spoke filled with the Spirit of God, a message filled with both truth and grace. He confronted the ways in which they had the wrong mindset. They were aiming for the wrong thing and the behaviors that flowed out of their life from the wrong perspective. He confronted that, but full of truth and grace. They were then cut to the heart, but listen to this. He says, beginning in chapter seven of 2 Corinthians, he says this in in verse eight. For even if I made you sorry with my first letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that I grieved you with that letter, though only briefly. Listen to this. Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, of course, but because your grief led to repentance. For you felt a godly grief. Remember that. A godly grief so that you were not harmed in any way by us. For godly grief, let's put it over here. For godly grief produces a repentance, a change of mind, a turning of your life. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. There are no two more contrasting destinations, life and death. And the difference, the starting point is, do we have godly grief that leads to salvation and life? It leaves no regret or worldly grief that leads to repentance that leads to death. So what I want to do is I want to talk about uh, first some worldly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to death. And you could say it this way, if there is a, uh, a shallow turning, i.e. repentance, if there is a selfish turning, i.e. repentance, uh, if there is a shame-filled turning, i.e. repentance, or if there is a stuck turning, i.e. repentance. That is all under the category of worldly grief that leads to repentance that leads to death. Let me walk through those four just briefly, and then we'll get to a godly grief that leads to salvation and life and no regret. A shallow turning. You know, a shallow change of mind, a, a, a shallow 
uh, turn, a shallow repentance is one that the moment something pops up where maybe you've made a mistake, where you've contributed towards a canyon, a gulf created between you and someone else, you're like, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. You know, it's like, sorry. Okay, I'm okay. Sorry. Like, can we just move on? Can we just watch the movie? Can we just get back to vacation? Can we just get back to whatever it is? There is a, a shallow turn, a shallow repentance that never, ever produces the fruit of what ultimately we'll talk about in a bit of a, a godly grief that leads to true repentance and true life and true, flir true flourishing, not just for you, but the other person that's been wronged. We can do this in our marriages. We can do this with our kids. We can do this with coworkers. We can do this on social media. We can do this in private. We can do this in public. A very worldly point of view is to get a statement, just put it out and just say, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Without it ever cutting you to the heart without ever truly changing your mind or turning your behavior, it could be a very shallow, I'm, I'm sorry. Look, I said, I'm sorry. What do you want from me? I'm sorry, right? It is a, a very shallow turn, a shallow repentance that sadly will come again and again and again and again and again and again because there is no change of mind and no turning of behavior when there's simply that shallow turn. And our world is filled with example after example after example. I want you to reflect on your own life. Is there a conflict? Is there a canyon that exists between you and someone else? And is it still there because you've done just a shallow turn, a shallow repentance that's going to lead to death? in that relationship, not flourishing, not life, not resurrection, not reconciliation, it, it, it keeps it dead. Second is a, a selfish turn, a selfish uh, a repentance. Uh, it, it is one in which we don't like the consequences at all of... Uh, our mistake. And so rather than apologizing for our mistake, we apologize just to get rid of the consequences of our mistake. We're sorry because of the effects of what we've done. Uh, the, the, the fracture in the relationship, the loss of benefits, the, the, the upsetness of someone else, the uncomfortability it's not a change of mind. It's not a turning of behavior. It is a wanting to just simply just remove the consequences, the, the, the outcomes, the fruit of the grief and the, the gulf from our sin that we created. And so a very selfish turn, a very selfish repentance doesn't have the other person in mind. It, it has me in mind. I don't like the feeling of this person being upset at me. I don't like, you know, uh, to have my boss upset. I don't like to have my coworkers upset. You know, this isn't going to be good for me and my career and my image and my just peace. And so I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. Can we get back to things now, you know? The world is filled with examples of selfish turning, a selfish repentance. And I want you to reflect on your own life. And if there is a chasm, if there is a canyon, 
Are you trying to simply turn or to repent or say, I'm sorry, just for your gain alone? Is it what you've done that grieves you? Or is it the fruit and the outcome and the consequences of what you've done that is really what's bothering you and you just want to get rid of that? The third is this shame-filled turn. It is a, a turn that leaves you feeling not just that you did something wrong, but that you are something wrong. You know, guilt and shame, uh, we, 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 we mash those things together too often. Uh, you know, true guilt is, is, is something that is, gosh, I've, I, this thing that I did was bad. Shame is, I am bad. Uh, guilt is, gosh, that thing I did uh, was a mistake. Shame says I am a mistake. We'll get to it in a bit. Godly grief separates who you are and your identity from your thinking and your actions, but a shame-filled, and this is, this is so pervaded our culture and our society, it doesn't differentiate between who we are and what we do, and we, and we can begin to get crushed and depressed and withdraw and begin to experience a death long before our last breath a death in relationships, a death in motivation, a, a death in drive, a death in dreams, a, a death in energy, a death of, of, of societal interaction, a death because we are so filled with shame and it crushes us. That is a worldly grief that leads to repentance that leads to a kind of death. And there's no shortage of example of that. Maybe there's some people that you know, some loved ones that you know, maybe you are that person that, that just gets crushed and, and actually because of that gets so sensitive to any form of criticism because they're not able to lay out what they've done at the table and to see it and to say, oh, oh, I did that. Oh, I'm sorry. It is too personal. It is too triggering. It is too sensitive that everybody else around them has to learn to adapt to then walk on eggshells that you wouldn't experience that shame. And we can insulate ourselves away from criticism because when we receive it, 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 it fills us with shame. And that is no life at all. I want you to reflect on your own life. Is that something that you resonate with that you can say, oh, yeah, I kind of go off the handle when I'm criticized. I, 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 I'm filled with shame for the stuff that I've done. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 when I say, when I fill in the blank of I am and the, the words that I use to fill in the blank after those two words, I am, the words that I use are very shame-filled. I am a mistake. I am a bad. I am worthless. I am not enough. If you resonate with that, there is hope and there's freedom today. And it's going to come from one of the most unlikely sources of all, this word repent, which we'll get to in a moment. But the fourth is a, a stuck turn, a stuck repentance. And you might say, whoa, wait, wait a second, that's, that's, that's incongruent. That's, uh, uh, what? It's an oxymoron. A stuck turn, what does that mean? 
Well, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's no turn at all. When you are stuck, you can't change. Uh, you cannot turn. You've experienced that perhaps. You've been uh, you know, out in your car, in the snow, in the mud, uh, wherever it might be. You might have uh, slid off the road and if you've gotten stuck in a little bit of a ditch, no matter how hard you turn that wheel, no matter how much you put on the gas, no matter how much energy you put into it, you cannot turn. You cannot change direction. You are stuck. And I do believe that often in the canyons that we have created in our life, a, a stuck turn is a unwillingness or an inability or a paralysis to have a change of mind or to have a turn in direction. It is a viewpoint that gets us into a rut of thinking that is convinced that we are always right and others are always wrong. That whenever criticism comes in, uh, we get louder, we get smarter, we get more convincing, we, 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 we surround uh, the troops around us to prove that, no, 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 I don't need to change my mind. You need to change your mind. I don't need to turn. You need to turn. And I see this more than anything else in our society right now and how easy it is for me and for us to get sucked up into that. It is an unwillingness to change our mind, an unwillingness to turn. And like I said last week, because we long to dwell in our comfort zones, we don't want to get pulled out of our comfort zones. We surround ourselves with people who think just like us, who validate the perspective that we have, the rut that we're in, so that we don't have to change our mind. Because to change your mind and to turn pulls you again out of your comfort zone. And I won't even get into the whole algorithm of social media. Some of you have become aware of this, that how social media is designed is to give you more content that you like. And so when you like something, you comment on something, you share something, you actually get more and more of that very thing. And you begin to see a world that is really in line with what you like. And you begin to live in an echo chamber and you think that the whole world likes what you like, listens to the same music, wears the same clothes, has the same view on complicated things, and we can get stuck in those ruts and never be able to turn around at the right moment. All four of those things, I believe, when they do produce a godly grief that leads to, or a worldly grief, forgive me, a worldly grief that, that leads to a repentance that leads to death. And maybe some of us have had experiences in the past that cause us to, oh, we just can't stand that word repent. Is it because we've understood it as something shallow or selfish or shame-filled or just something you just don't do because it's a sign of weakness? and you get stuck in it? Well, what's the alternative? Again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, it's not a worldly grief that leads to a certain type of repentance. It's, it's, a, it's a godly grief that leads to a repentance, that leads to salvation and no regrets. It leads to life. It leads to joy. It leads to peace. It leads to flourishing. It leads to what Martin Luther was inviting you and me into an entire life of this. And I want to give you an example in Scripture. And we're going to dip our toes into this parable, into this story in Luke 15, and we're going to get in the fullness of it on Easter Sunday. In Luke 15... 
in the parable of the prodigal, there is this remarkable story that Jesus tells that gives us a window into many, many things. There's many things that this parable talks about. It's not a singular thing, but one of the things that I want to key in on in this sermon, again, I'm going to go into more detail on Easter Sunday. Invite your friends, by the way. Invite your coworkers, by the way. What an opportunity in the midst of the year that we just had to be reminded of new beginnings and new hope and new life. The death doesn't have the last word. We're going to get into greater detail this parable, but what I want to do is I want to key in in the parable of the prodigal, which many of you, you know this story. It's the story of a father and two sons, a younger son and an older son. And we know this story, if you're familiar with it, is one in which it kind of begins with the younger son saying, Father, I, I, I want my share of the inheritance. And to say that in a first century context is basically to say, Dad, I consider you dead to me because inheritances only came after death of a patriarch the death of the head of a household. And he says, you know, you're, you're, you're dead to me. I want to not wait until after you, you physically die. You're already dead to me. I want my inheritance now. Talk about a wrong perspective or wrong mindset. And because of that wrong mindset, action now flows out of this younger brother. And he says, I want it now. The dad gives him that inheritance now. And he then goes out, he leaves for a foreign country and he lets loose, and as we might say today, he really lives. I mean, he experiences life. And in his wrong thinking, in his wrong mindset, he aims for something that he thinks is the real thing, the true thing, the thing that's going to lead him to joy and to peace and to satisfaction and to security. And it doesn't. And something happens that is the same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2 when the listeners to Peter's sermon were cut to the heart. Listen to how it is recorded in Luke 15, verse 17. But when he came to himself, some translations say, when he came to his senses. The phrase that is used there in the Greek language gives the imagery of someone who finally wakes up, finally comes out of their stupor. Somebody who comes out of the fog and the haze and the disorientation and finally has a clear view. All of a sudden, the truth of a right perspective, of God's perspective, cuts to his heart and he comes to his senses. Now listen to what godly grief that leads to a repentance, that leads to a salvation and no regret looks like. He says this. When he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. He realizes he's been aiming for the wrong thing. And listen to this, verse 18, I will get up. I will go to my father 
And I will say to him, listen to this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. How critical is this minor, seemingly insignificant fraction of a degree that leads to two vastly different outcomes? He says, I'm going to go to my father, my earthly father, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned. I have aimed for the wrong thing. I have sinned against heaven. Godly grief is first and foremost one that is vertical in nature. It is one when you come to the realization that what you have aimed for wrongly is something that is different than God's best for you. It's not shallow. It's not just trying to say, oh, oh, I'm sorry, let's just move on. It's not selfish. It's not saying, oh, I don't like these consequences that are popping up because of my behavior. It's not shame-filled. You're not stuck. You're not just moving forward like bull in a china shop. No, it is something that you come to the realization that you have aimed for any target other than God's target for your life. And that first and foremost, that the canyon, the chasm that exists is first and foremost between you and your creator, you and your designer, you and your savior, you and your Lord. True metanoia, a true change of mind that actually leads to life is when you change your mind to God's mind. When you change your mind to God's mindset. When you change your perspective to God's perspective. Now here's what's remarkable. Jesus says earlier on in the gospels, he says, no one can come to the father unless the father draws him to himself. Did you know that godly grief and godly repentance is something that you can't do in your own strength, in your own mind? You can only have godly grief with God's help. You can only have a godly change of mind with God's help to change your mind. That is the gift of the power of the Holy Spirit to prompt you to come to your senses, to be cut to the heart. God's truth and God's grace is one of the greatest gifts that we can get because what it is, it is a lifeline that is thrown out to us. It is a life preserver thrown out to us. It is something that rescues us from our, our wrong thinking, our settling, our shadows, our counterfeits. And that sharpness of the truth of God's word, when it cuts to the heart, when it causes us to come to our senses, first and foremost realizes that we have a problem vertically and we have sinned against the maker of heaven and earth. And we acknowledge that. And it pains us. And it grieves us. And our change of mind is the kind of change that God is longing for. Uh, the turn of our heart and our, and our perspective and the turn of our actions is, is, is a turn that actually doesn't lead to more 
religion or more avoidance of something, it actually turns towards a relationship. A change of mind is, a, is an about face towards our creator, our savior, our maker. Our Prince of Peace, our Lord of Lords, it is a turning to the source of life, a turning to the source of joy, a turning to the source of peace, a turning to the source of salvation. And then out of the overflow of that, this prodigal rightly realizes, and he says, I have not just sinned against heaven, but before you. You see the story of the, the prodigal is a reminder that, that sin doesn't just affect me, it affects us. It fractures relationships, relationships not just between us and God, but us and each other. And the aggregate of that builds up and builds up and it extends out into the broader community in sin. It affects communities, it, ex uh, it affects churches, it affects all of society, it affects the world. In godly grief that begins with, God, I, I've been off the mark from what you've longed for me to live and I turn back to you. It is an acknowledgement at the horizontal level in our relationships that the canes that exist aren't just created by the other, but by me as well. And it is a change of mind and it is to acknowledge and to turn towards God's best for us. And the remarkable thing here is that it says, remember in 2 Corinthians 7, it leads to salvation. That's the vertical and the no regrets. You see, godly grief and godly repentance of turning actually leads to more joy, not less. More peace, not less. More freedom, not less. We have an opportunity in these moments to allow God's word to cut us to the heart, to come to our senses and simply turn to God. To turn around at the right moment, not too soon, not too late, the right moment. We have opportunities galore, as Martin Luther says. An entire life should be filled with repentance. Imagine this, you know, the world says, you know, repent, feel awful, say you're sorry when things go bad and when you mess us. No, Martin Luther says, no, all of life should be one of repentance. Did you know that in Romans chapter two, Paul says, did you know that God's kindness towards you is meant to lead you to repentance? That means every good gift in your life, every satisfying thing, everything that you've hoped for that happens, those are meant in your life to turn, not to feel shame, not to feel sorrow that leads you to a depression. No, it is an opportunity to turn away from, I deserve this good thing. Of course I should get this promotion. Well, no wonder I got that because look at me compared to everybody else. No, 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 it is a turn away from that and it is a, a repentance, a change of mind, a turn to God to say, God, Every good and perfect gift comes from you, as it says in James. I don't deserve this, but with grace, I receive it. With gratitude, I receive it. With thankfulness, I receive it. I'm telling you, if you live a life that no matter what comes in your life, leads you to turn towards Jesus, to turn towards God, to turn toward God's best for your life, 
There is a joy that abounds that will leave no regret. So friends, would we not settle for a worldly turn, but may we make godly turns in our life. It's his kindness that leads us to that. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have come to show us not only how to live, but you've also shown us that no matter how we live, when we turn to you, we receive the fullness of all that you've been offering us. That you've loved us long before we turned. As it says in the book of Romans, that while we were still sinners, Christ, you died for us. You didn't wait for us to turn and then die for us. You died for us before we turned. But it's in our turning that we can see that which you offer us, Jesus. So Father, God, draw us to yourself through the power of the Spirit. May we be cut to the heart through the power and the sharpness of your word. And may it lead to life and no regrets. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and we say together, amen.